0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's Bayfront Park could undergo a transformation into an island. That's one of the proposed changes as part of the Hamilton bid for the 100th anniversary Commonwealth Games. Some unsettling news. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians could be consuming tap water with high levels of lead. Those are the results of a massive year-long study that was done. And Susan Rice, former National Security Advisor under Barack Obama, has warned that Canada should not allow Huawei's revolutionary 5G network. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting news about uh, the Commonwealth bid here for Hamilton. Uh, Should Hamilton Bayfront Park actually be changed to an island for the Commonwealth Games? That's one of the things, uh, among many, in uh, a a suggestion in a paper that's uh, being put forth to Hamilton City Council right now. Jasper Kajaski, of course, is a Hamilton lawyer and consultant who is heavily involved in the uh, the bid and uh, the construction of the bid, I guess more specifically, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Morning, Jasper. How are you doing today?
1: Good morning, Bill. I'm doing great.
0: Listen, good to have you on the show today and, and, and uh, to shine some light and, and some clarity on this. Uh, maybe before we get into some of the specifics about uh, this the island concept here, uh, bring us up to speed on where the bid is right now, could you, Jasper?
1: Well, big day coming up on November 6th. Everybody is invited out. I hope people will come to Hamilton City Hall for the General Issues Committee meeting, which starts at 9.30 a.m., uh, where Hamilton 100, the not-for-profit federally incorporated bid corporation that's putting forward the bid, is, uh, is going to be before Council, and our President, P.J. Mercanti will be presenting together with architects and other, Gary Zabrowski and others as uh, we have the Part 1 hosting proposal, which is the document due by November 22nd, and we are going to be asking City Council for their permission to submit this document by that November 22nd deadline, and that hopefully will then lead to an announcement probably sometime in December that we've been invited into Part 2, and then once Part 2 is due in the springtime, March-April period, that'll be the next piece of work to be undertaken. So, Obviously, what we're hoping is that Council will, of course, grant the permission on, on, on Wednesday and then formalize that when council meets.
0: Okay. Now, the, as you know, Jasper, you've been dealing with council for different things over the years. Uh, they get a little skittish about things sometimes, about making full commitments until they've got all their ducks in a row. Uh, is is this vote that you're looking for this uh, this coming week, is, is, is this tying them to it? Is it committing them to, to this process?
1: It ties them to nothing other than allowing us the permission to submit a document by November 22nd that subject to the terms of the Memorandum of Understanding that Hamilton 100 and the city signed going back a number of months, um, which was unanimously passed by council, which has specific wording that says that council has the right at any time and for any reason to withdraw its permission. And it assumes absolutely no financial liability for the bid of any kind. And it is allowing this not-for-profit created within the city to do certain things and the city at any time that it desires decides can say nope we're going to stop it at that point and you just keep moving along in steps where the city sees the progress that's being made allows the process to continue and has the full discretion to withdraw it at any time
0: because you know you're going to get questions about this from some counselors i can probably even tell you who they're going to be uh, about financial commitment so basically then from what you're saying today, what you're asking from Council in the next couple of days here is to really re- reiterate what they've already given you permission to do.
1: It, it's, a, it's just another step. Exactly. It's another step along the process where we've set... Everybody knows what the timelines are for the submissions to the, uh, both the Commonwealth Games Canada and then ultimately in the international phase. And at each step of the process, there's permission required to submit any documentation. And that's what the Memorandum of Understanding covers. And at any point that we move to a new step that re- requires other types of commitments, council is going to know that well in advance leading into those discussions. And that, that will play itself out over the, you know, in the next you know, number of months, but certainly into the year, as we get into the international phase.
0: I want to talk about the national aspect of this, though. Do you know off the top of your head if there's anybody else in this country that's even interested in in putting a bid in? In other words, is there going to be competition nationally here before you even get to the international level?
1: I'm not going to be presumptuous about anything, but I just take from what's actually been going on facts that other cities, in fact, knew that the International Commonwealth Games, as you remember back in August, they came and visited Hamilton. And they had made, They had also let other cities in the country know that they were going to be in the country. And those cities politely declined to to put on a major visit. And I think that's because there's just an understanding that there's an irresistible nature to the story of Hamilton hosting the 100th anniversary in exactly the same spot where it began, in the heart of the Golden Horseshoe, a market that can sustain such incredible, um, you know, things that are going on and and access from transportation perspectives. I think everybody just realizes that this is headed in that direction and they're not going to step in front of that train and try to stop it.
0: So, again, you don't want to be presumptuous, but by the same token, you don't expect anybody to come out of the weeds at the last minute and say, hey, what about us?
1: No, I really don't. I think the issue now is moving towards really understanding not just how to bid for these games, which we're doing, but essentially we're bidding by creating a complete hosting proposal that incorporates everything that needs to be done to ensure not just that we win, but that we execute this and execute it smart, execute it in a sustainable way. The key to the whole bid is sustainability. It's all those 17 goals that set up by the United Nations on sustainable development goals, environmental remediation, affordable housing, social impact, all the value propositions of this. It, it's under the umbrella of a... An international sporting event that you have a community-building, social impact exercise. That's what these games are about. It's not about hosting a huge games and hosting and and hoping that you're then not left with white elephants that you didn't need, other than the games that they were built to 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 be a part of. It's all reversed. It's all created on social impact and making sure that this is done in a scaled way that leads to long-term sustainability and not just something you build for the short term.
0: All right, so let's talk about some of the specifics that you are going to be talking about with Council uh, in the next couple of days. And, and one of them, of course, is the story that we were carrying on CHML today about uh, right. turning Bayfront Park into an island for these Commonwealth Games. Uh, talk to us about the, that, that whole concept and the feasibility of that.
1: Well, it's certainly in the early stages, and, and that was acknowledged by, uh, by Bark and by Chris McLaughlin in his comments, which I thought were very thoughtful. I, I just had an opportunity to see the, the article having just gone back into town. And um, the whole concept of having the environmental remediation and creating a long-term safe water at Bayfront Park and dealing with the issue of the, of the blue-green algae and the other harmful contaminants, it's an aspirational vision. Um, it appears, and there are certainly a lot of experts that are now looking into this, and there's going to be far more work done on this leading into the Phase 2 part of the proposal. But, you know, if, if this uh, does take place, um, the, uh, the park is being restored in a way in terms of the natural flow of water and the prevention of the formation of algae. That would be a very good thing for the harbour uh, to experience.
0: Well, from my understanding, though uh, Chris McLaughlin from uh, Bay Area Restoration from BARK uh, wasn't even consulted about this. Though I, I, was is there any discussion at all about with the, with the people who have expertise in this area about how this might happen and and the results?
1: Perhaps we will have to check on our understanding of of who was uh, spoken to. But um, every, there was significant consultation that took place beforehand, and there's going to be significantly more going forward.
0: Uh, the stated goal here, but obviously cleaning the waterway up and and making it swimmable, uh, is is a laudable goal as you mentioned, Jasper. And and it, it's uh, actually very coincidental because I just had Chris McLaughlin on the show a few weeks ago, and I guess and we had a very in depth discussion about the water quality in that particular yeah. area. And and this is not the, the the by the way the silver bullet solution that's going to fix that up totally. I mean, as Chris told us, and I'm sure. Uh, as as he will tell you at uh, at future meetings there are a number of different things including runoff run water and, and and of course uh, the climate change and a number of things that are all factors in in the, the water quality down there and this but this would help by by any stretch of the imagination but, that's, but, but go yeah, ahead
1: that's, that's the point i would completely agree with what you just mentioned chris having said is that this is a multi multifaceted problem and like you say there're no silver bullets the the concept here was as as you have an opportunity to go forward and to create projects, environmental projects, affordable housing projects, other social impact projects under the umbrella of a Commonwealth funding proposal that if you don't win the games, you don't have access to that kind of senior governmental level of funding for these kind of projects. And moving forward, if, 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 there are going to be, if there is going to be the opportunity to make this happen, and it turns out that the engineering solutions that have been identified are, in fact, feasible, then we're going to have a process within which to do it that outside of the games wouldn't have existed.
0: What would you be using this for? I mean, people in their mind's eye, and I'm sure are picturing the the, the area we're talking about here, Jasper, and uh, if you were to get off, I mean, right now there's an awful lot of green space there. There's a walking track around the, the perimeter of it, of course. And uh, there's a beach that nobody dares go into, obviously, because of the, the, yeah. the smell and the, and the pollution that's there. But right. but for the sake of the Commonwealth Games, what do you see on that location?
1: I'm sorry, solely for the purpose of the games, or are you talking about the long term legacy?
0: Well, you talk about is, is this is going to be included in the bid package, according to the article right. we saw in the Spectator today. Uh, so, so I'm, what I'm asking is, what what do you see there? Uh, uh, Long term, I understand the viability and and the and the environmental uh, enhancements are fabulous ideas. But is there a purpose to actually having that anything there? There, I mean, is there going to be event there? What what, the what do triathlon. you see? Out- okay,
1: that's the tri That's the proposed site for triathlon.
0: So that's that's where that's In, the purpose the of this. then. Proportion. okay, I got you. All right. Because that that wasn't clear, and I've got I had some people ask me about this this morning, and I just want to make that clear that so this is actually going to be an active part of of the uh, of the infrastructure for the games itself.
1: Yeah, the triathlon event, which includes the swimming, you know, proportion uh, swimming component, cycling that that particular event.
0: Okay, uh, how do you put this thing together now? And I'm talking about the the larger bid package here, and obviously this is going to be part of it. Uh, but as you go around the city, and and I know that we've gone through this exercise before with past Commonwealth Games bids and and even Pan Am bids, Uh, because you've got to have a number of different venues, obviously, for these games to be successful. And I know the International Committee has been around here and looked around, but you've got to get specific now about, well, that's going to go there, this is going to go here, Uh, usage of Tim Horton Stadium, obviously. Tim Horton Field is going to be a part of that, I would imagine uh whatever arena is going to get built i guess is going to have to be part of it do you have you itemized all of these things right now are, are they all together in, in at least in your projected bid package anyway
1: yes if you the document that the council will be permitting us to submit on hopefully permitting us to submit on wednesday and then confirmed by council includes a bunch a, a number of different venues some are proposed as temporary some are permanent some are, um, are in existing retrofits. There's a, there's a lot of information that our architectural team has put together in the venue plan. Now, much of it is going to emerge and change as we move forward. As you said, the arena concept, that's a whole other discussion that, that we're you know, not getting into right now, but is subject of its own uh, examination. The convention center, the multi-sport center, the swimming facility, the um, the new cricket pitch out of Confederation Park—that's an extremely exciting project. We could we'd love to spend more time with you talking about what's happening with cricket in Canada and with the games, and uh, other than that. And so, there's a significant amount of information that's available in regard to the emerging venue plan.
0: So, w- at what point do, do you actually start talking about money? I mean, at some point, council is going to say, "Yeah, that's great. Go ahead. Let keep us posted." But at some point. Uh, there's going to have to be some dollar figures attached to this, and, and you're going to have to get down and dirty about exactly where the money is going to come from. How, how far away from you are to, at that point?
1: How far away from that conversation? Yeah. Probably about six months when you look at the movement into the Part 2 proposal, and then if after if part of the Part 2 consideration into the spring, Hamilton is designated by the Commonwealth Games Canada board as the Canadian city for an international competition, then there's at that point going to be the launching into the significant conversations that center around the multi-party agreement which governs that final bid. And that's where a lot of uh, the questions you're, you're raising will start to become crystallized and become more... Specific.
0: Have you had any discussions, general or specific, I guess for this matter, Jasper, uh, with uh, federal and provincial leaders about this? I mean, invariably, there in past games anyway, uh, right across the country, there has usually been participation by the federal and whatever provincial governments involved. Do you have that commitment from them?
1: That governments will make those commitments uh, as we move forward. We're we're respons- There are certainly, conversations start. Sport Canada has been specifically involved at the federal level with regards to this, uh, to getting that process going uh, in going. So uh, that will that will begin again to crystallize moving into the future. But at this stage, the important thing is for the host community to to have its ducks lined up in terms of what we're doing and then there'll be an app, an opportunity down the road to get into the more specific conversations about other levels of government.
0: Well, a couple of days from now, obviously, you're going to be before Council. It's going to be interesting to see just kind of uh, the, the feedback that you're going to get from them as you go forward on this. There's uh, some exciting stuff in here, and, and obviously, as we get a finer detail about the plan itself, I know we'll talk again down the road. Jasper, thanks again for this. Appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a
0: lot. Take care. Jasper Kujaski, of course, a Hamilton lawyer, who is heavily involved with Hamilton 100. And uh, Hamilton's bid for the uh, Commonwealth Games coming up in 2020.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A very, very uh, important uh, report that was done on Global National last night. Is Canada's tap water safe? Thousands of test results showing the high lead levels right across the country. This is uh, disturbing to say the least. Joining us to talk about the report is uh, Heather Yerkes West from Global News. Good morning, Heather. How are you today?
3: Good morning. I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. As I say, I watched the stuff of the report last night on Global National. And uh, if this is something we take for granted. We figure, well, you know, cities are all, you know, they've got this, these plants, they're cleaning this up, everything's going to be good. And when you turn the tap on, there's an expectation that, well, it's it's okay. Uh, not so much according to the, the, the data that you've collected over the last while.
3: Yeah, this was a pretty comprehensive investigation that Global News was involved in, in partnership with, uh, gosh, ten universities, nine other media partners. So we dug into uh, thousands of water tests collected right across the country, uh, 12,000 that were collected just in the last few years, and we found that one out of three exceeded uh, what Health Canada considers safe when it comes to high levels of lead. So. Exceeded five parts per billion and then 18% were more than three times that limit So there is a potential that hundreds of thousands of Canadians are being exposed to high levels of lead Which can be very bad news for their health
0: well, and we don't know anything about this You can't look at it for the most part as you say you can't taste it, but it's still gonna have an impact on our bodies
3: Oh, that's right. I mean, the science is very clear. Lead has been linked with a long list of, of health problems. Um, in fact, the World Health Organization, you know, I mentioned Health Canada said five parts per billion is the their national safety guideline. But the World Health Organization, CDC and the U.S. say that there's no safe levels of lead because it has such um, a pervasive impact. is It's a known neurotoxin. For adults, it, it impacts uh, things like hypertension and kidney problems, and then it's even more dangerous for, for children, it impacts their their uh, cognitive development, um, a lot of, uh, can be associated with a lot of long-term health problems, so it is really bad news to have any level of exposure, particularly through our drinking water.
0: One of the things I found intriguing about the report, though, Heather, is uh, many of the experts that you worked with on this report were unaware of this, and they, and they were, quite frankly, from what I, I saw from the information you presented, they were shocked at, at, at the results.
3: Thank <laughs> Yeah, not only the the experts, but the residents. So part of this investigation, we did a lot of our own testing. We went door to door in 32 communities across the country, knocking on doors, testing people's uh, water if if residents volunteered to take part. And we found that 40 percent, nearly 40% had high levels of lead. And a lot of these residents were were shocked. They had no idea that in some cases it was three, four times what uh, was considered safe. Um, A lot of the experts that we spoke with were involved in um, the Flint, Michigan, tainted water crisis back in 2015 involved in, in exposing that and a lot of people were just sort of incredulous about the uh, the lack of transparency in in Canada that a lot of this testing had been done but it was just the information was just not available to the public
0: uh, yeah the analogy with Flint I think is very apropos here I mean because we saw mm-hmm. that and we were shocked by that and justifiably so and and I'm sure you know that we have, there's a bit of a link here between Hamilton and Flint anywhere. Obviously, we do the competitions every year, the sports competition, and we're twin cities. And so there was an affiliation there, and we did what we could to try to help them out by sending bottled water, at least in the short term, to help them. But I don't think anybody in their wildest imagination, uh, Heather, figured, hey, that's going on here too. Maybe not to the same extent, but it is happening.
3: Yeah, we have a, a leading uh, expert in, in on this topic in Canada, Michelle Brevost out of uh, Montreal, and she has had says in the, has said in the past that yes, there are likely Flint's right across the country, and, and our data showed that that you know when we're comparing lead levels alone, it's important to remember that the Flint water crisis, they had problems with bacteria in their water as well. But yeah. if we're comparing lead levels alone, then we did find comparable levels in a number of cities, including Saskatoon, Regina, Montreal, Prince Rupert up in BC. So yeah, this is this is quite serious.
0: Now from a municipal standpoint as I mentioned at the beginning here I mean you know the c- communities have water treatment plants uh, they I guess for the most part are under the impression that once that water leaves uh, and starts going through the system it's fine at that point uh, From but I'm gathering here is that part of the problem here is the system itself it's in other words it's the pipes in which the water is actually traveling that seem to be uh, a good deal of the the problem here
3: exactly so the water leaving water treatment plants is perfectly fine the contamination is happening as it travels through either lead service line pipes so city infrastructure municipal infrastructure or when it gets to your private home um, because up until just you know the last decade couple decades uh, people were using uh, lead soldiering in their plumbing uh, some lead pipes in their homes so at, over time this this infrastructure is crumbling and corroding and that is get leaching lead into our water so like you said it's it's not the problem of the water treatment plants it's what's happening as it travels to our taps
0: what kind of response did you get from municipalities when they saw this data
3: well there was a lot of uh concern that we were that we were drawing the comparison to flint and wanted to make sure that you know it's nothing to do with our water treatment plants and 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 that's and you know that's true but um you know, it was, it's, it varied quite a bit. So when this uh, investigation was published in Quebec, uh, the city of Montreal has uh, announced some immediate changes. They are going to replace all their lead service lines. They are going to implement a program their homeowners can have the city pay for, uh, pipe replacements. They will just have to pay that money back, I think, within 15 years. And and as well, if if you're a homeowner in Montreal or a resident in Montreal, you can go onto a website today, type in your address, and find out your potential lead exposure through your pipes. That's not something that's available to uh, many Canadians outside of Quebec. So that's an example of some some changes that are are happening as a result of this investigation.
0: We had a similar program in Hamilton some years ago, uh, especially in some of the older parts of the city here, the older neighborhoods, of course, where these pipes were prevalent. And, uh, and the, the problem, of course, is not, it was voluntary. Not everybody took the city up on this program. Uh, but uh, the, clearly, I mean, especially with some of these older neighborhoods, you don't know how much actually lead pipe there is. You're right. I mean, some of them may not be. You know, the water main that's running down the street may not be. But that connector that goes right into the house oftentimes is. And, uh, and if you don't know that and if you're not looking for it, uh, then, then clearly you could be victimized by, by what you've talked about here.
3: Well, absolutely, and it's expensive, right? I mean, yeah. $2,500, $5,000, it's a lot of money for some homeowners. And then you, you think about landlords, maybe your renters have no idea what, what they're getting into, and then this is a problem that, that gets worse over time as, as the pipes get older and start to corrode. So, yeah, this is, this is an issue that I, I really believe that a lot of Canadians had, had no idea is still an issue.
0: I know the the municipalities are always going to give you this well you know we do our part you know we're we're cleaning the water and it's perfect by the time it leaves but they had to have known that there were lead pipes in the system and they they clearly didn't do enough about it uh, at at that time anyway and and now clearly they're reacting to your report but uh, I, I guess the concern a lot of people are going to have here Heather is this too little too late.
3: Well, I mean, it is pretty eye-opening. The the pediatricians that we spoke with um, say that, yeah, if, if you've been exposed, if children have been exposed, some of this damage is going to be um, permanent and, and we won't be able to, to reverse it. But, you know, we need to get the information out so that people can make informed decisions. Because, you know, when you have uh, water laced with lead coming out of your taps, you can do things right away today to, to protect yourself. You know, you can flush the lines. You can buy a filter. You know, you can choose to start drinking bottled water. Uh, all kinds of things if you are armed with that information. Um, and, and what are, a lot of our experts were, were saying that we spoke to too is just give the people that information so that they can start making some decisions for themselves. I mean, it's important to note that of the 12,000 samples that we we um, analyzed, for this uh, investigation. These are samples that existed that were taken by municipal workers in cities across the country that was not available to the public. We had to tease out through freedom of information, you know, expensive, lengthy freedom of information requests to get at this information that wasn't readily available to Canadians, but Canadians can see that information as part of our coverage today.
0: Well, that's going to be part of the conversation, I guess, each one of us is going to have to have with our, our own particular municipality is why were they sitting on that information? Clearly they knew it was bad news. Uh, and what were they doing about it and i guess th- that's going to vary as you mentioned in your reporting uh, from community to community as to how they actually responded to this and i'm sure we're going to have that discussion here in the hamilton area as well but you know to, to put this in context because uh, you mentioned obviously the the, the obvious uh, you know alternative as well i guess you have to rely on bottled water but i mean look at what we've bought over oh, the last couple of years there's been a real push now to say don't use bottled water because of the impact it has on the environment uh, the bottles themselves. We knew tap water. Tap water is safe for you. That's where you should be going. Forget about this bottled water stuff. Uh, now you get this reporting about the quality of the water that's coming out of the tap. And and I, a lot of people are just going to be throwing their hands up, Heather, and say, where do we go now?
3: Oh yeah, because the advice to, to you know protect yourself from, from lead in the water really flies in the face of all of this sort of conservation um, and environmental uh, messaging that we've been given. You know, don't use bottled water to conserve plastic, conserve water, don't flush it. Well, you know, if you have lead service lines, you're you're being told to run the water for five minutes or more. Right, that's not uh, a conservation uh, approach at all. But um, but at the end of the day, this is how the water is leaching into the tap, and so this is uh, some things that we need to keep in mind as long as lead service lines and lead soldiering and and other parts of uh, plumbing fixtures are are still being used.
0: I wonder if they're going to be starting revival of some of these programs in some of these communities I mean there's got to be I would think a, a, a concerted effort right now to try to eliminate the, the, the lead altogether is that even feasible?
3: Well, it'll be expensive, and, um, you know, as you mentioned, it's very different municipality to municipality, and that's something to highlight as well, that, you know, Health Canada does set the national guidelines, but water quality is left up to municipalities, and health policies is left up to the provinces. So there is, you know, it's a very patchwork approach across the country, and, uh, yeah, when we talk about programs, it's going to be up to the different levels of government to really kind of coordinate their efforts and, and, you know, decide what to do next with this information.
0: Yeah, because it's really, as you mentioned uh, in the reporting I mean, this is all on the municipalities at this stage it's it's not as if you can look for a federal government program or something along that nature because water quality essentially falls under the purview of local communities and municipalities mm-hmm. so they're going to they're going to wear this and, and the residents uh, are the ones are actually going to wear it because obviously it's going to have an impact on property taxes
3: yeah i mean property taxes provincial taxes like this is you know, this is, is a large issue. But, you know, the the, the science is quite clear about what, uh, uh, what a significant impact this has to people's health. So it is something that cannot be ignored.
0: Heather, what's the takeaway here? A municipality is going to have to do a better job of testing. Uh, but even if they were to do that, I mean, they can't knock on every door and test everybody's water. This, this, I guess there's got to be an individual responsibility here, too.
3: I think the takeaway here is testing and transparency. So first of all, I mean if if you've done testing then release the information. Let let residents know what 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 is known and where things are are a problem we know that it's it's more likely a problem in in older neighborhoods um, you know if we can get a handle on on where get an inventory and that's something that is, does not exist a, a, an inventory of where the lead service lines are in the country I mean that's definitely the first step but but yeah transparency um, uh, identifying where what areas do need to be tested and then yeah go from there
0: it's a, an eye opener, to be sure, and it's certainly going to. I think uh, it's it's going to be a catalyst for conversation in just about every community, uh, and mm-hmm. and well worth it. Uh, if people did not see the story, if they want to get a, they go to the Global News website. And of course, we've got it on our nine hundred chml website too, a Global National, uh, with this story too. Heather, a great reporting on this. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, you've uh, certainly you've certainly opened our eyes to a major problem that I think each and every one of us have to take some uh, responsibility towards fixing. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate this.
3: All right. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Hi. Heather York's West, of course, Global News. Uh, and it's all about quality of drinking water. And uh, just I uh, got an email from Bob Ortina, of course, MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, uh, who was, uh, of course, a ward councillor and the mayor for the city, of course, in past days, uh, reminding me that uh, we do have a program here in Hamilton to help people with modest means to pay for lead line removal. And it's, uh, as Heather mentioned, it varies from municipality to municipality. Uh, the municipality will pay the upfront cost, which is substantial. I mean, we're talking, as she said, it could be upwards of $5,000. Uh, depending on the work that needs to be done. Uh, but uh, you do pay for that installments, and it's uh, 10 years on the you know, the water bill. So you're going to see a bit of a jump in your water bill over a 10-year period, but that's how you pay back the loan. So it can be done. And if there was one takeaway from this whole thing, it's look and see for yourself. I mean, you can usually tell uh, just by going down into the basement if uh, if you have access and, and you can visually see uh, the water pipes coming into your house. Uh, if it's lead, you got to get rid of it. That's all there is to it because it is having a detrimental impact on your health and on your family's health. And uh, as the reporting said on that, uh, the health risks are significant. It's not just, well, it doesn't taste well. It it has an impact on on internal organs and lasting impact on internal organs as well. So it's something that needs to be done. And uh, I know the municipalities already responded to this. But like we said, you can't go into every house and say, hey, we're going to fix this for you. Uh, The owners, landlords, uh, whomever, are going to have to take some responsibility uh, for what's going to happen here and uh, make sure that this gets done. But it's it's one of those in investigative reports that you just sit there and you're transfixed as you, as the data's coming out here, and you've got experts who are looking into this and and they're shocked by the data because I you know we are taking precautions and we are doing as municipalities uh, what we're supposed to do for the most part uh, to try to clean up uh, drinking water and tap water, and we are as we talked about from an environmental standpoint. Uh, really, really trying to convince people to move away from bottled water. Although, just judging by the stuff I see going out of the grocery store every weekend, uh, a lot of people haven't really adhered to that. Uh, and they maybe just right now hearing this whole reporting and thinking, ah, see, we were right all along. But there's some environmental concerns about the, the plastic bottles as well. So what way to go? Well, the way to go here is to check this yourself and to ensure that the problem doesn't exist in your house. And uh, hopefully enough people will get that message over the next little while. Uh, just before we go to break, uh, breaking news that we heard just at 9.30 from uh, Shona Thompson that uh, the uh, support workers for the uh, the education system here in the province of Ontario have ratified their deal, 79%, which uh, was a bit of a surprise, frankly, uh, because we had heard some rumblings. Of course, they settled this thing, well, potentially settled it, almost a month ago now. They had a tentative agreement. Remember, they just uh, avoided a strike. They got a, a tentative deal on a Sunday, and they were going to strike on the Monday. So that's not going to happen now. But uh, the ratification uh, took an awfully long time uh, for them to count, and, and I guess different areas, because obviously different boards are going to do it in a different fashion. But we had heard a number of rumblings uh, that, uh, that they were not satisfied with the tentative deal. And there was some concern that this thing could get turned down, which could have been catastrophic, because these are, are not just maintenance workers. They were education assistants in the classroom, a number of different people that were involved in this. And that essentially would have, if not shut down the system, it would have crippled it significantly. So it looks like that's not going to happen, and that's a good news story for students, for parents, for everybody, and for the workers themselves to know that there's going to be some stability here over the next little while. But it's not the end of the problem, of course, and it's not the end of the story because at the other end of the, uh, the bargaining table are uh, the teachers, uh, all of whom, by the way, are, are now beginning negotiations uh, with the, uh, the province, with the Ministry of Education, about their contracts, and we are told that's not going very well. And a number of boards, of course, and a number of teachers' agencies have already taken strike votes. Uh, They're not there yet, but they have that capability, uh, and they're well within their rights to do that now. Uh, We can only hope it doesn't get to that point. We've lived through a number of those over the last number of years, and it's uh, problematic for everybody involved. So uh, we're certainly going to keep an eye on that, but the good news is it looks like the support workers and education assistants are uh, good to go, back to work, and that's going to be fine. Teachers, not so much yet.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Susan Rice is a uh, national security advisor. She was a, a active member of the Obama administration. And uh, she has weighed in on uh, what has become a very controversial issue on this side of the border, which basically has drawn attention from uh, right around the world, really. And that has to do with the 5G network, which we've talked about a number of times with uh, Adam Oldfield on Tech Talk uh, about the advent of 5G and and from a technical standpoint I think most of us are pretty well versed about how exceptional that's going to be and what it's going to do to us uh and with our systems with your phones with your all your your uh, your devices but, but that argument gets put aside for a second the biggest concern and we heard this from Susan Rice just the uh, the other day over the weekend is about security and uh, the five eyes who of course are the, the the intelligence partners right around the world uh Canada being one of those members have also raised some serious issues about whether or not Huawei should be involved in the 5G network. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, good morning. How are you today?
2: Doing good, fine. Thanks,
0: Bill. Uh, consistently here from, from uh, experts here, from security experts uh, about Huawei. And, uh, and Canada, of course, has yet to make an official decision on this. Maybe you could just let our listeners in on, uh, on some of the concerns that are being raised and whether or not the, there's a, some legitimacy to those.
2: Um, the um, the um, uh, the Americans and I don't do not just mean Trump. There are many people in the American national security establishment, both Republican and Democrat, that predate Trump's presidency, who have expressed grave concerns about Huawei. Um, going back before Trump became president, I, I, the reason I'm emphasizing this I don't want you know your listeners to think this is a trump thing it's not a trump thing it, it It's been expressed by our own national security people here in Ottawa uh, the retired the now retired director of a thesis uh, came out very very strongly on CBC saying we must not under any circumstances allow them to uh, uh, sell their 5G equipment, um, and, uh, and the Americans have said something very similar, whether they're from the left wing or the right wing, whether they're Republican, whether they're Democrat, whether they're from the Trump administration or from the Obama. There is very serious concern that the company, which um, was founded by a former, I believe he was a colonel in the People's, uh, PRC, the People's Republic of China Army, and then he went into the private sector. But his um, to this day, it's had very, very, Huawei has had very, very close ties with the uh, government of china with the prc and um and they're not fully transparent in terms of their ties and the fear is that they can embed um i'm not a techie i'm not an engineer so i'm so bear with me Uh, they can embed uh, stuff how's that there's a non-tech there you go (laughs) they can embed stuff in the um that's silent and cannot be um seen it cannot be um uh, uncovered that will um, uh, transfer information back to China um, uh, on uh, Canadian companies, on Canadian governments, on Canadian consumers. And and we don't have any... A lot of it is speculative. but And, and normally, I would discount it. Um, normally, I would. Because, you know, it's the old thing. If you can't show me the money, if you can't show me the data and the evidence of it, well, then why are you talking about it? But because this is being said repeatedly, not by one person, but by many Different people at the highest levels of American national security and Canadian national security. This should give all of us uh, a great deal to ponder. And uh, I have, uh, I'm obviously um, mixed. I'm um, conflicted, I guess is the right word. I teach in China every year. I'm not paid by the Chinese government, I'm paid by my university. Um, but I've been going over to China since 1997. And um, teaching there once a year, and um, uh, teaching in English, and uh, teaching business courses, by the way. And, uh, um, and you know, I, I enjoy going there. I've had great experiences. And uh, God knows if they're spying on me, I don't know. They don't tell you, you know, if they're spying <laughs> on you. And uh, I've never had any sense that they are, but then what is there to spy on? I'm just a teacher, you know, I'm a professor. and uh, But the point, again, is, is that this is 5G is going to revolutionize, and we haven't talked about this yet. Uh, We've got to talk about it just very quickly. 5G is going, and I know we throw these terms around all the time, revolutionary and transformative. Again, I'm not an engineer, but I've read up a lot on 5G, and I've talked to engineers both in the Faculty of Engineering at Carleton and to people in telecom and stuff I've read in the tech magazines. And this new technology is going to be, transformative radical revolutionary it's going to permit or enable enable the emergence of industries and companies we do not even imagine yet we thought that you know with the uh, the net the commercialization with the first browser back in 1995 that led to amazon we thought wow that was really really cool stuff this is going to be many magnitudes cooler many magnitudes more important. And it's going to become the backbone, the DNA of the economy in Western economies. So if it's under the control, if only latent control waiting to be turned on and turned into action, if it is under the latent control of, of the Chinese government, this would give them an enormous, enormous um, advantage over us, that's way better than having your army land. Not that I'm suggesting they want to land their army. I mean, you, you basically infiltrated the company, country, without infiltrating the country. <laughs> you,
0: you don't need an army if you've got that. You don't I need mean- an army.
2: You don't need an army. Because the new world that we're in is its digital. We're in the digital world where everything, every one of us listening, you don't have to be an engineer. I mean, Bill, I've got... Everything I do is digital. I mean, my, all my, my visa bill, my utility bills, my water bill, my hydro bill, my heat bill, all my bills come in electronically. My banking, I do it only online. I, I do My paycheck goes in. My mortgage payment goes out online. I pay my bills online. I never go to the bank anymore. I never pay any business where if I owe them money. I just transfer the money electronically like to supplier contractors doing small jobs. I, and I'm just a, just a regular small guy. And, you know, a homeowner, a consumer. And, and so the point is, and of course the universities and governments were 100% digital in the university. We stopped printing manu- uh, calendars, oh my goodness, 10 years ago. We stopped giving out, for older people who aren't, haven't been paying attention to what we do in the university, we stopped printing course outlines at least 10 years ago. We just point them to the, to the address, to the electronic address and say, there's your course outline, go get it. We we do not give out paper anymore in the classroom. We do not give out any paper whatsoever. All the grades are submitted electronically. It's not about putting them in in a piece of paper carrying them in and then somebody transcribes them. We enter the grades electronically into the grade database. The students access their grades electronically. We tell the students the only way they can communicate with us is by email or in person. Yes, of course, but they never show up. I communicate 100% by email with my students. And so my point is, we have, in a very short period of time, roughly, what, 15 years, gone to this digital world, and now 5G, which is going to be many, many magnitudes faster than the old world, and you'll be able to transfer much larger files. They're talking about being able to transfer the totality of all the books in the Library of Congress in something like five seconds or something. It's that kind of speed and power You'll, you know, you'll be able to transfer gigantic, gargantuan amounts of information instantaneously. And this is going to allow all kinds of new industries to be invented and created, and new jobs and new opportunities will be created. It's going to be truly transformative. And, and that old world that we grew up in in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s is gone. It's dying, but it'll be gone within five years of 5G, I predict. Because it's that transformative. And if these fears are correct by these highly informed people, I can't argue with Susan Rice. I'm not at the top of – I never was at the top of the American spy system. I never was at the top of the Canadian. How can I argue with them? not that I want to. I'm just saying they have access to information that you and I
0: can never access. And these are these are the people that we trust with our security. I mean it's Precisely. it's it's the CIA, it's the FBI, it's the, it's the yes. MI5 over in the UK. Yes. Uh but, but why are we taking so long to give these guys an answer? And basically for the by the way, a, a very apt description of what you just talked about Ian uh, essentially, what Huawei is asking is that they want to use their infrastructure to build the five G network. I mean, yes. we're already concerned about people hacking into it. Now we're basically saying, "Yeah, you go ahead and build that, but uh, I, we, yeah, yeah, we don't we don't think you'll actually listen in. They're doing it now, exactly.
2: And and if people are wondering what the debate is, the telecoms, and I'm talking, let's put names to it: Bell and Rogers and Shaw. And I'm not trying to beat up on them. I'm a I'm a happy Bell customer. I've got all everything: my internet, my phone, my my TV, my everything with them. don't like their prices, but I'm happy with their product and their service. And uh, they're uh, really leaning on the government to let uh, Huawei in because they're saying if they don't, their uh, Huawei uses price as its competitive advantage. Yeah. In other words, it prices below the big Western equipment companies that make telecom equipment.
0: And by the way, that's a legitimate point, the pressure that the government's getting. It's not that they're saying, hey, we don't believe what the CIA and others are saying. It's the pressure they're getting from the telecom people here this side of the border, who we already yeah. know exert great pressure on, on any government yeah. in Ottawa yeah. Uh, yeah. when it comes to CRTC, when it comes to rates that are being set, et cetera. They, they like Huawei, and, and that's why, I mean, yeah. you see, I mean, they, you know, they give these things away. I know a lot of people with Huawei phones, and they yeah. love them. They, they're they a great product. Yeah. But yeah. But to actually give these guys license to do the whole network – uh, and yeah. and I, I can see now the concerns are being raised right now, but the government's yeah. going to have to get off the pot and make a decision on this.
2: I agree completely. It's one thing to buy a Huawei phone. It's just a phone. It's a device. But the backbone, I mean, this is the architecture. This is the DNA of the economy, literally. That's not, I'm not being hyperbolic and exaggerating. This, The 5G, when it gets rolled out, it's going to be costing the billions and billions of dollars because it's going to replace the existing... 4G network. Most people don't really realize that it's 4G, but the network we're using right now is 4G, which just simply means fourth generation of telecom equipment. Now we're going from the fourth to the fifth generation, but it is a quantum, gargantuan increase in speed and amount of data that can be transferred in very almost instantaneous moments. And it's going to transform everything. It's going to transform government, the way government communicates, the way government stores data, the same with universities, the same with hospitals. I mean, I can give you an example, autonomous vehicles. People may sit out there listening maybe say, well, I don't get it, I, what's the big deal? Autonomous vehicles need gargantuan amounts of data very, very rapidly because when the car is driving down the street and something jumps in front of the car, it has to process that data really, really fast so it doesn't hit that object probably called a person. The current network cannot deliver the data in a timely manner. It's just not fast enough or powerful enough same with uh, remote medicine where the doctor is in Ottawa uh, diagnosing somebody um, in a remote aboriginal reserve, and there's huge amounts of data involved. The data existing network can't handle it. Once 5G is rolled out, you're going to be able to transfer enormous amounts of information, enormous amounts of data instantaneously. So it's going to allow all kinds of industries to emerge that require huge amounts of data to be transferred Almost
0: instantaneously, and it's going to be—it's going to be incredible. But the government's got to do something about this and make a decision. Ian, we're just about out of time, as yeah. always. Thanks for the insight into this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. Ian Lee from the uh, sports School of Business at Carleton University.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.